All right, I hope everybody's doing well. Did you grab a um, handout on your way in? And uh, we are going to wrap up or finish up the, um, sorry, there we go. Wrap up, finish up the section in Ephesians chapter 5. So take your Bible, Ephesians 5 is our text tonight, into Ephesians 6. In fact, we really will start with Ephesians 6 this evening. Uh, By way of review, you saw the section there at the top. We talked about wives and husbands uh, and their responsibilities to each other. And then uh, this, this, by the way, uh, if we back up even further, these are a series of passages that I found to be incredibly helpful when uh, when we do counseling or when we help people with basic growing and changing principles. I find myself going to these passages over and over and over again. So these are some of our favorites, some of my favorite and um, probably some of your favorite passages as well. So uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we talked about uh, husbands and wives, their relationship to one another. And then in uh, the end of this, I asked the question, is uh, Ephesians 5.33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And <coughs> excuse me, let the wife see she respects her husband. Are these commands conditional? What did we say? Excuse me. No, they're not conditional. They are demanded. So uh, the one that uh, most people say, no, well, a husband doesn't have a condition. He shouldn't say, I'll love you if you do such and such. That's, of course, wrong. But it is just equally the same for a wife to say, no, I'll respect you when you deserve it. I've heard people say that. Well, he doesn't deserve my respect. Um, he has to earn my respect. And I, I think, biblically speaking, you are called as a wife to respect your husband as a husband is to love his wife unconditionally. And I think that's important because if we keep going, see the chapter and verses that we have in our Bibles today, as you know, were not inserted by the Apostle Paul when he wrote the book of Ephesians. He wasn't sitting there writing chapter 5, verse 1. I don't know if you knew this or not, but when the Apostle Paul wrote, he just wrote the letter. Later, people put verses and chapters in, and why would they do such a thing? Why would they put chapters and verses into a book like Ephesians? Right, right. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to talk about something, let's take a bigger book, the book of Matthew. And you said, you know, in the book of Matthew where Jesus says such and such. And you said, well, where is that? And I said, what's in the book of Matthew? <laughs> you know, it's a, that's hard. Matthew is a long book. Hebrews is a long book. Acts right now is a long, we're going through that on Sundays. It's a long book. So uh, later scribes, when they were working through these books, they said, well, let's divide these into logical chapters. Sometimes these chapters are logical. They make sense. Sometimes the chapter divisions are in really strange places, as is the case with this particular chapter. Because if you come to chapter 6 and verse 1, what's the first word? Children, what have we dealt with in chapter 5 and verse 22? Well, well chapter 5, verse 22, what does it say? Wives, comma, and it tells them what to do. How about chapter 25 from verse 25? Husbands, comma, right? Now chapter 6, verse 1. Children. It's like they're headers. He's like saying, okay, wives, here's what you're supposed to do. Husbands, here's what you're supposed to do. Children, here's what you're supposed to do. I I do not understand why we have chapter 6 in verse... And it's okay for me to say that because the, the chapter and verse numbers are not inspired, Okay. God, these are, these are, man put these to help us find things in the Word of God. So chapter 6 and verse 1 is continuing the thought from chapter 5. And what's the command? Chapter 6 and verse 1 says, children, what? What's the command? Oh, see, all the parents know that one. 
No doubt, right? Obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. This is very straightforward. Your parents guide you in the Lord's way, and as they do so, you are to obey them. Okay, If your parents are trying to get you to steal things, you have permission to not obey them. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous, but it's not so ridiculous. We were overseas one time. My wife and I were in the Philippines. We were eating dinner at an outside um, mall in the Mall of Asia. We were sitting there eating dinner, and there was a little boy who crawled underneath the table and tried to steal the camera from our friend, uh, and he popped out, and his uncle, who I assume was his uncle, I don't know if he was his uncle or not, uh, was his guardian, and he, uh, he was employing this boy to go and steal things from people. So people do these kinds of things, and if your parents say to do something that is wrong, you are not to do it. You are to obey your children in the Lord and to follow as God would have you. And as you would obey God, you should obey your parents. Um, you should obey them. He's not saying that there is a, whatever your parents say, if they say you got to rob a bank, you got to rob a bank, you are to obey your children in the Lord, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That's right, you children snickering over there. I did not say that the parents were to obey their children, and my tongue got tied there for a second. So I do not give you permission to go home and tell your parents that pastor said they have to be obedient to you. But I want you to notice uh, how we are to obey. And, and these next three w- words I have here uh, are things we've taught our kids, things I've said before. Uh, I, I like to say, when you obey, you obey in three ways, and it's easy to remember. And this is something, if you're a parent or grandparent, perhaps is something to communicate. You are to obey quickly, quickly, sweetly, and thank you, completely. I love this. Quickly, sweetly, and completely. So quickly means on time, right away. If you delay, it's to disobey. Sweetly means you have to have a good attitude when you do it. It's not obedience if you slam the door on your way to clean your room, right? That is not obedience. And completely means when I say clean your room, you clean your room, not just clean a corner of your room, okay? And um, I have no problems with parents agreeing with me on these things, typically. Uh, When we uh, did the youth group years ago, we came up with the youth group core values. And the youth group core values for mission trips. They were not for the whole youth group, but for mission trips, we came up with core values, essential values, core values for mission teams. And one of them was obedience, because we had a problem with this, actually, on a mission trip, where I would ask uh, young people to do things, and they would not do them properly, and so we came up with a definition, and the definition, is any of you guys, any of you guys, girls out there memorizing, do you remember what the definition for obedience is? And if you don't remember, it's written on your sheet. I don't know if you noticed that, but I put it there in a little box for you. It says, obedience is doing exactly what God or my authority has a- asks thoroughly on time and with a good heart attitude, which is the same thing as this, quickly, sweetly, and completely, but just maybe dressed up a little bit. Thoroughly means um, doing it. Um, oh, hang on, before I get there, I want to just talk a little bit about obedience here. Obedience is a submission of my will and priorities to the will and priorities of someone else. That's what it is. Doing exactly what God or my authority has asked of me. Sometimes I will need to postpone, I will need to alter my desires for the needs of someone else. I may want to sit back and watch TV. But to obey means to do something else, right? To cut the grass. Obedience is anti-selfish in that it does not mean that it is necessarily selfless, 
but it works against our natural tendencies to be selfish. So when you're obeying, you should obey in these ways thoroughly. Obedience is not true obedience unless you do it thoroughly. Okay? Half obedience is disobedience. If you're doing it partially, what you're saying is you're only doing it the way you want to do it um, or enough to get someone off your back. Um, and thorough obedience requires you listening to what's being asked of you. I think that's very important because sometimes when you're being asked to do something as a child, or if you're teaching your children to obey you, you need to make sure they're listening to what you're saying and you're using words they can understand and they can comprehend. If you're using big words or words they don't understand, you're not helping the situation. So they should do so thoroughly. Uh, on time, obedience is not true obedience unless you do it on time. That means you need, need to be, that means you need to be punctual in your task. If you do it as soon as you possibly can or immediately to delay obedience is to say my priorities take priorities over your priorities, right? You delay obedience as a kid or as a, someone in, under authority. And I think these principles apply even in a job situation. I think they would apply obedience to your boss. I think that would, these same principles would apply very well. Um, and with a good heart attitude, that just means that you should do the job but not groan and complain. Uh, to do so is not biblical obedience. You might be technically doing it, but your attitude demonstrates you disapprove of what's been asked of you. Does that make sense? Um, and that is, that is not acceptable obedience, and that technically is not obedience. So uh, examples of bad heart attitudes would be groaning, sighing, rolling your eyes, sarcastic responses, dragging your feet, slamming doors, things like that. So what is the result of obeying that command? That it may be what? That it may be well. What does it mean that it may be well with you? What do you think? Life is easier, says my wife. Okay, life is easier when you obey. Okay? When you disobey. Okay, yeah. You choose the hard way, you can disobey. Yes, ma'am. There are blessings with obedience. Things go better. Things are better for you. Why do you think it's so important to remind kids of this, that it will actually be good for you or well with you when you obey? Yes, sir. Why do you think it's so good? You earn trust. You earn trust. That is so true. As a kid, you earn trust. When you obey, you earn. My dad used to call it putting the trust deposits in the piggy bank. It's very easy to shatter that piggy bank and spend all of your trust in one moment. But over time, you can build up trust by being obedient. I think it's important because kids don't have the context to understand the blessings that come with good, righteous behavior. Okay, kids, their lives are extremely short. They have a very small, you ha- they have to take it on faith. This is hard. And it's easy for us as adults to forget that it's hard to believe some of the things that parents tell them. I remember struggling with this as a teenager, seeing my friends do things, and it looked like they were having fun and getting away with it. And my parents and my people who love me saying, that is a dead end. That path is not a good path. And it's hard to believe that when you don't have the context. When you're young and all you see is the fun and you don't see the back end of it. It's, it now we, as, as if you get older, the, I, I know my friends who used to do those things. I'm like, yeah, that was a good call, Dad. I mean, those, those were dead ends. Those guys taking drugs and, and drinking and stealing and shoplifting and doing all these things that they were laughing about and thinking were hilarious when I was in high school. I knew these kids. And it's like, I, don't, I, I mean, I, I believe you that it's bad. But honestly, sometimes it's hard to believe that it's bad because you don't see the ramifications of it. And so you have to remind them 
that there is more to the story. Okay, so just remember that. Put yourself, when, you're, when you have kids and you have teenagers, put yourself in their shoes. Remember, remind yourself that they don't have the context. They don't have the life story you do. They don't understand by experience. They have to be taught and taught to trust you in these things. Does that make sense a little bit? Okay. And I haven't got to the teenage years with my own kids, and I, I, I know that there's a lot we're going to learn uh, in this as well. Oh, so you may have a long life. It may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. You want to live a long time? Obey your parents, okay? Let's keep going. Uh, the next command is to fathers. Anything? Anybody have comments on that? Yeah, Patty. One other thing I was going to point out, too, is not only is there a blessing, but they're also avoiding consequences by being obedient. That there's, that it goes well, that you don't have to deal with the negative part of this behavior. Yeah. Yeah. You're avoiding the consequences, the negative side, but you're also receiving positive blessings. Absolutely. Let's look at fathers. Uh, he, he narrows in on fathers here. He says, and you... Fa-. Yes, sir. Skip. Go ahead. I think it's a blessing and a warning. I kind of put a blessing here, but I think it's, it probably could be both. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's look at fathers, if you don't mind. Let's look at uh, verse 4. He says, and you fathers. He kind of turns a little bit on the, uh, talking to the children. And, and it has to do, I think, in the context of obedience. Now, the responsibility for the parent-child relationship in the home is not just on the child to obey. This is very important. It's also on the father. The responsibility of the child-parent relationship is not just the kid. It's not just, kid, just do what you're told. Just do what you're told and everything will be fine. That's not the end of the story. He turns on this obedience thing. He says, and you fathers. And he points the finger at fathers. And what does he tell the fathers not to do? Because as the children are going to obey the parents as they obey the Lord, then the fathers need to reflect the Lord as their parent their children. If the kids are going to obey their parents as they obey the Lord, the parents need to reflect Christ. And this area, if mishandled, is ripe for abuse. And you see it every day. You see abusive fathers all the time. Non-existent fathers, absent fathers, abusive fathers. Um, extreme. I mean, in this room, I've talked to many of you who have had bad experiences with your dad because he could provoke you to wrath. So this is an area ripe for abuse, which is why God drills down and says, you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You have the responsibility not to provoke. That's our blank there, not to provoke. You cannot, you should not provoke to wrath. Provoke to wrath in the Bible here is one Greek word. It has the idea of making someone angry, just making someone angry. I like the picture, the, the English word provoke is great because it has this idea of stirring someone up or poking them with a stick. You provoke them to wrath. And um, I know I can do this with my kids. I know what makes my kids angry. And I could easily, now most of the time when I do this now, they're laughing and we, and we, we goof off. But I know that as time goes on, I could easily make my kids very angry and then get mad at me. Um, a, a dad might even think he's won the battle by getting his child to obey, even if that makes him 
if that means he's provoking them to anger. I think this is interesting that God directs his attention to fathers here instead of mothers. Um, is that possible because fathers are responsible for this aspect of child rearing more than the mother is? I don't know. But when you think about how absent fathers create such issues in our culture today, to me, it's a, it's a huge purpose why God directs right towards fathers that dads make a huge difference. And this dynamic is extremely important. So what's the alternative? Do not provoke your children to wrath, but what's the alternative here? To bring them up and the training and the admonition, the, 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 to nourish them, to raise them, and the training and the discipline are the admonition of the Lord. There's a little bit of overlap in these two words, uh, training and guidance. And training means guidance or instruction. It's more of the positive aspect, I believe, of parenting. Can I have a few people read from verses here? 2 Timothy 3.16 and Hebrews 12.5. Somebody read these verses. Uh, they're, they're, written out. they're not written out for you, but the verses are there. Okay, I have one here, and then I need one more, Katie, here. So uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, we're going to see this word instruction or guidance or training here. Whenever you're ready, Christopher. 2 Timothy 3.16. There it is, for training or instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for these things. How about Hebrews 12, 5? Um, Katie? And we have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Do not despise the chastening of the Lord is the word there for instruction or training, paideia is the Greek word. It has to do with discipline of children. Okay? And he says here that do not, be, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That is what we're to do here. Chastening, training has more of the, uh, this training aspect. And instruction. Instruction is uh, Hebrews 12, 7 to 8. Yes, sir, Christopher or Chris? Yeah, in verses 7 and 8 here, he says, if you endure chastening, that's the same word there, chastening, um, uh, this chastening, chastening three times, verses 7 and 8, and then in verse 11, I'm sorry, um, I'm going to skip down to verse 11, but no chastening seems joyful for the present. Same, same word here. These are connected with rebuke, this idea of training or instruction, but correction, instruction, the next word, nuthesia, sorry, or nuthateo, uh, it has to do with instruction, it is exhortation. So let's look at this for 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Who can read 1 Corinthians 10, 11? Anybody got it? Oh, yes, go ahead. These were written for our admonition, for our instruction, for our 
correction for our instruction here. There is the training and the instruction of the Lord that we are to bring up our children in. And this is extremely important because I want to, to look at this chart below here. I want us to think about the difference between how we are to bring up our children as Christian parents and how the world teaches us we are to build up our children because the world has a philosophy and a theology and an anthropology, which means they believe certain things about people. And they may not know they believe this, but let's just talk about this. Look at the, um, look at the chart there. What does the, what does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible teach us about the nature of man? What does the Bible teach us? Let's start here. So let's say, let's say the world and then the Bible here. What does the Bible teach us about the nature of man? We are, we are sinful. We are sinners. Okay. We are sinners and um, we are imperfect, okay? We are imperfect, we are sinners, um, and because we are imperfect and we are sinners, uh, we need a Savior, we need to be corrected, we need to be instructed in righteousness. But what does the world teach us about the nature of humanity? What does the world tell you uh, is the nature of people? We're essentially good, I like the word perfectible, okay? They believe that we are perfectible, that, there is, that there is, it is possible for people to be perfect. There is utopia as possible, that, you know, that people are, can be good on their own. And in fact, they are good. In fact, if left to your most natural self, you are good. And so this creates the problem. If, if that is our issue, if that's the nature of man, then why is there a problem? What creates the problem? To the world, why do we have problems with children? Why do we have problems with the world around us? Outside systems. Or environment. So it's not, it's not that your child is wicked is that society has placed these undue expectations on him, and he has responded wrongly to these expectations. Okay? This is, and every culture, and everything in our culture today is pointing to this. They say, the problem is not with you, it's the problem with out there. Okay? It's the world. It's everything else. Putting these pressures, it's society, it's systemic we hear these words constantly. And the only way to change, the only way to have a perfected people is to change a system. So we have perfected people. Okay, this is Marxism. That's what, what we hear all the time. Sinners, if the, if the world teaches us the, the, uh, the problem is outside of us, what does the Bible teach us? The problem is inside. The problem is the heart. We have sinful hearts that need to be trained. And... Um, the problem is primarily inside the child. So how does one, what's the ultimate goal of the world? What's the ultimate goal of the world? If you are perfectible and good in your nature, and if the world outside of you is causing you to be bad, then what's the ultimate goal for the, uh, for the parenting? A, how, would, how would the world teach you to parent? Self-actualization is a really fancy word. Yeah, but that's exactly right. And another way of thinking about this is authenticity to the self. 
And the way, the way that this is taught is that people need to just blossom, right? You need to let people blossom into who they truly are. And, and so authenticity is how I put it, or self-actualization, becoming your highest self, okay? This is how the world teaches is your ultimate goal. What's the Bible teach us is our ultimate goal? Christ-likeness, not self-likeness, Christ-likeness. So it's not an idea of blossoming into this flower of beauty by ripping down all of the outside pressures. It is using discipline and instruction to discipline us towards Christ-likeness, that we might walk with a disciplined mind towards Christ. We might be Christ-like in our in our living. We know, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. We are, we are to have a, a different way of thinking about the world. We are to be, we are, we are to be different from our world. Um, and the, the best way I like to explain this is that you see this in, in films, movies, and TV. My wife and I joke that, that every movie today for kids is based on the, the idea, it used to be, that you were a person who had a problem. You had an Achilles heel. You had an issue that, that you could not solve yourself, and you faced failure, and then you overcame your, fa- your, your problem, and then in the end, you ended up dealing, you facing your, your quote-unquote demon in the story, right? You face your biggest flaw. You overcame that flaw, and you're better off for it. Like, that was the basic plot of most movies in the classic tradition, right? In, our, in a biblical worldview, that's how we tell stories, that's, and that's a lot of Bible stories are like that. In the world we live in today, most, especially geared at kids, most stories are, you are perfect, just misunderstood. And no one understands how great you are. And the whole world, no one, can, no one sees you for who you truly are. But at the end of the story, rather than facing your fears and overcoming, you get to show off how great you are to everyone. And then the end scene is the whole town of the community surrounding this little girl, this little boy, and acknowledging how great they are. I have seen that movie multiple times now, and we get so mad. Every, oh, here it comes. Ah, it's so frustrating. And, and, and we, 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 we are really... Uh, sensitive to these things because it's everywhere in our culture today. It's everywhere in our culture. It is a, it is a contrary to Bible way of looking at human nature. When you see people as perfectible and ultimately good, and the reason they don't have the goodness just showing out is because everyone else is their problem, this is a recipe for disaster because can you control any of this can you, can you make changes to any of these things? If society is the problem, what hope do you have? Just get somebody with a really big stick to force your way, right? Government, that's it. But realistically speaking, can you, can you do anything about these issues? No, it's, it's a recipe for despair. But God gives us hope because he tells us that our problems are put off, renew, put on. They are they are very much, we are sinners, we need to confess and repent, and we need to change, and God can use us making small changes in our life to grow and become more like him every day. If you're a Christian, I'm not saying you become saved through this, I'm saying this is something for Christians, that there actually is hope for overcoming these kinds of pressures and these kinds of difficulties in your life. Do you see what I'm saying? You've got to train your kids this way, because if you don't teach them this stuff, they're going to absorb this stuff. They're already, yeah, they're already being taught. We, like, we, we stop the movie, and we say, okay, what's going on here? 
What's wrong? What, what do you notice? And we, we've started pointing out to our kids. You see how ridiculous this is? Like, what's, what's going on? I remember doing this when, um, uh, when, when I was younger, The Little Mermaid came out. And um, I remember my parents just hating every moment of that movie and then having like a conversation with us afterwards about how wicked she was in disobeying her parents. And now my just, I just had this conversation with my wife recently. I was like, it made me so mad. It's like she sells her soul to the devil and she gets away with it. Like it's like the worst kind of story you could tell. It's Faust, but the opposite. You know, she gets away with it. It's, it's awful. And it, people today absorb it and they're like, oh, it's so wonderful. It's kids' entertainment. It is teaching, it's teaching contrary to our script. We need to be careful. This kind of stuff is more dangerous than swear words, okay? Because it gets to your heart and it really cuts deep to who you are in your identity, okay? So that's why we have to train them in the nurture and admonition of the world because the, uh, of the word because the world is contrary to the word, okay? I've gone over by like a minute or two, but is there any, any questions, anything I said here that provokes a thought that you want to get clarified on? Yes, yeah, Skip. Yeah, that's all right. That's what... Sophia, yes. Yeah. The city of man, yeah. Utopianism is the idea that, it, that everything could be good, everything could be perfect, but the problem is all these people out here are making my life imperfect. If everybody just would do what I said, everything would be perfect, and, and it just isn't, isn't true. Until the, the, the king, until we're all, until we're all uh, made new and we have the king establishing his new heaven and new earth, uh, we're going to live in an imperfect world. And um, so, so train yourself. Train your own mind. Be careful what you, what you ingest. Be careful what you believe, and be careful what you teach your kids. So children, obey your parents, but fathers, you have a big responsibility to, to train your children as God would have you train them. Father, we thank you so much for this time together tonight. I pray we would renew in our hearts the desire to follow you with everything we have. We would examine what we teach our children and make sure that we teach them the truth of the Word of God and not get swept up in our cultural uh, environment. I pray you bless our people as we go our separate ways. Thank you so much for how practical your word can be in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks.